0: This morning. Uh, We're uh, continuing our series in Nehemiah chapter 3. As you know, Nehemiah is about rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem in 440 BC, but this is way more than a history lesson this morning. We're going to go far deeper than simply telling the story of how this wall got constructed. I mean, that's one aspect of this, but there is a deeper aspect here and it's about what Nehemiah was building and that's what this morning is all about. I remember many years ago, it was over 30 years ago, that my father bought some property in Idaho, and uh, we went up one summer and did some fly fishing and fell in love with this region just on the other side of the Tetons from Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and it was in the Idaho side, and it was a beautiful valley, and uh, there was some property available for sale and my dad bought some, and and we designed a log home. The the logs were cut, it was all designed, they were numbered, and they were delivered to the location we arrived in the summer of 1980. My brother and I, my father and a couple friends from high school, we drove up in a van and we took a look at this foundation that that had already been poured for us, the first floor, and we looked at all these logs and it had just rained. And all the numbers on the logs had, had just literally been washed away. And here we were standing here, never built anything in our lives. We hired a boom truck and a couple other local contractors to help us, and we had to figure out how to assemble this thing. I thought it was simply building a cabin. What I realized now over 30 years later was far more than a cabin. It was a lifetime of memories. It was a lifetime of family coming together, all my siblings, my brother, my two sisters, my mother and my father, lots of friends, lots of family. Over the course of the next few years, after I graduated from college, during the, after the, the cabin was built, I met my wife, Denise, we were married, and we would go up with my family, my sisters, my brother, my father, my mother, and build lifelong, lasting memories. Our children would come along. We would drive out, drive out every summer, a thousand miles. We'd pile in the car at 4 a.m. in the morning, and we'd go straight all the way, 14, 15, 16 hours. We'd go all the way. We'd stop along the way. Uh, we'd have certain spots for breakfast and lunch, but we'd arrive by the evening, and the kids, every time, every single time, they would just come alive. It was just one of those moments that you just, you just remember forever of a family coming together and waking up that first morning and looking out over the Tetons and the river and all of the hikes and the activities and the meals together. It was far more than building a cabin. It was building a lifetime of memories for families. And I believe Nehemiah knew that. I believe when we get to Nehemiah chapter 3, when it says that various priests arose with their brothers and the priests built the sheep gate and they consecrated, uh, hung the doors, and they consecrated the walls of the tower and the hundred and the tower of Hanel, Next to him, the men of Jericho built and next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri built. They began building the wall and the towers and the gates. And they began building every aspect of this wall around Jerusalem. Nehemiah knew. He knew something was greater was going on. He knew it was far more than simply a building project. It was far more than restoring Jerusalem to a city of prominence in Israel. It was far more than simply giving back the people their city and the temple and the walls, and security. It was far more than that. It was about building into families. It was about building into people. It was about building a community of people that would honor God. And I remember the multiple times of walking and conversation on the deck at our cabin about God, going deeper, reflecting, meeting with the Lord, having a hard year and yet arriving and having a week-long time of just feeling just fully inundated with the presence of God. That's what I've got to believe. This is what they're building. They're building this for all the people and for all the nations. It was far more than simply a building project. It was about building people, building memories, building families to meet with God. And this morning, what I want to look at with you is the mission of God is rebuilding and restoring people. And I want to look at three things this morning. I want to look at the fact that there was a project going on here. We can't miss what they're building. It's biblical significance, deep, deep significance from the Old Testament to the New Testament of what they were doing. And the reason why we're here today doing what we're doing is because Nehemiah built what he built in 440 B.C., but there's also something else going on. There are gates, and there are 10 gates referenced in Nehemiah chapter 3. And as you walk around the wall and they rebuild these gates, these gates are far more than just simply gates. They're far more than ways to come in and come out of the city. Now, sure, certainly, historically, that's what they're for, to, prov- to provide some protection to also provide opportunity for different groups of people from different areas to come into the community of of faith. And those were the gates. But the gates have more significant, I think far more significance, spiritual significance in our lives as we talk about rebuilding and restoring. We're also talking about rebuilding and restoring our own lives. And the gates have certain references that I think point to spiritual significance in our lives. We're going to look at those this morning. And then finally, I just want to touch on the fact that Nehemiah was a great leader, a phenomenal leader. I mean, imagine one individual doesn't live in Jerusalem, comes into Jerusalem, and within several days inspires an entire community to gather at once and start a building project. How did he do it? So let's look at those three things. The first is the project. And I call it the city on a hill. And in Nehemiah chapter 3, it says that the high priests to, came together and they arose with their brothers. Now, the New Living Translation, I love the New Living Translation. It says this, in autumn, all the people assembled in Jerusalem with a unified purpose. See, you miss that in the New American Standard, but in New Living, it says they came together together. For a unified purpose, and that unified purpose was to build a city for God. That's what it was about. It was a city on a hill, and thousands of years later, Jesus would refer back to this city of God. And in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says that we are the salt and the light of the earth, guess what he's doing? He's looking back to what Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel built. And in Matthew chapter 5, it says this. You're the salt of the earth. It's who you are. That is who you are. You're the salt of the earth. And boy, do we need salt today. You are the salt. If you are not salty, the world will be saltless. It will not have the salt to sense and taste the pleasure of God, the beauty of God. And then it says this, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You're the light of the world. See, the city represented a light to all the nations. In fact, if you go to Isaiah chapter 2, it says that it would be the mountain where God would reign. And in Isaiah chapter 2, looking forward, it says, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of all mountains. See, it's Mount Moriah. It's on a mountain. Jerusalem's on a mountain. And that's where the temple was built. And that represented the very place God would be present. And it says in this passage, this is the mountain of all mountains. All the nations will stream to it. And many peoples will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of God of Jacob. He may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. And then later it says, Nations will not lift up a sword against nations and never again will they learn war. There will come a time when the city of God, the presence of God will come to this earth in such a powerful way that every nation will come together and gather and there will be no more war. There will be no conflict, no fighting. It's, it's identifying a worthy cause. That's what we're talking about here. Do you live for a worthy cause? Are you building toward that in your life? That's what we're talking about. The city represented something that we can participate in, a worthy cause. What is God calling you to do? They were building a city that would be that place. In fact, in two other locations in Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 6, I will appoint you a light to the nations. See, this is not some exclusive city just for them. It's not we're in and everybody's out. This was a light to the nations. Everyone is welcome. We, you are here on this earth, not for yourself, but for other people. You're a city on a hill. And then it says in Isaiah chapter 49, 6, I will make you a light to the nations so that my salvation will reach to the end of the earth. How else will people know God having a conversation with a a woman that uh, came over that was just kind of needed some rest and just needed a nice dinner and a place to relax and hang out. And she came over Friday night and joined us for dinner. And I lit a fire outside like I do often do. And it was a beautiful evening. And we sat out. And she's part of a very, very large, global, powerful ministry. She's a businesswoman involved in a fantastic church. And yet she needed some time away because she feels so stressed out and burnt out by all the things that she's encountering, both in her ministry and her church and her personal life and all of that. And, and it, was, it was a great time to connect. And what I heard as she was sharing some of her own stories and conversations with her family is, where's the confidence? Where's the confidence today? Where do we put our confidence? Do we put it in the church? Do we put it in the city on a hill, some other place, some other thing that we're doing? Where's the confidence? Where's our confidence? Where's our trust? What do we really believe in today? There was a lot of question, and I appreciated that. I realized that in light of what's been going on even in this last week, what we need today is a city on the hill. We need the peace of God. We need the love of God. I have not seen greater division in our country, and I can't even tell you how long. The, the, the amount of anger, the amount of hostility, and, the, and the, the language and all that is going on, it saddens me. It breaks my heart. And what I realize is what this country needs, what this world needs are more cities on a hill to bring the hope of the love of Christ and his peace where there will no, be, be no more war. See, see, we come together as a place where we're all friends. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we, we put down the swords. We put down the fight. We come together because we believe in a greater cause, that God is doing something greater. And one day he will wipe all that out and he will clean it all out and it will be beautiful. And that's what we're building to. And we get opportunities now in this lifetime to begin building toward a worthy cause, becoming a city on a hill. It was a very, very special city for the people, the temple, the place of worship, God's presence. In fact, Josephus, he's a great historian. He, died, he, he was born just after Christ was crucified and resurrected. And he became, as a Jew, he became the historian for the Romans. And he's describing a historical situation at war. Titus, the great general in AD 70, comes into Jerusalem because of the the, 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 the problem was the Jews had uh, had revolted. There were several things that happened that resulted uh, in a, a reason for them to revolt and stand up against uh, the the Romans. And so They revolted, and they came in, and they they pressed hard on him and defeated him. And when they came in, Titus comes in, he defeats Jerusalem, and he'll wipe it out in 70 A.D., burn it to the ground. But here's Josephus in, in book five of his writings describing the splendor of the city of what will be destroyed, what was destroyed. Now, the outward face of the temple in its front wanted nothing that was likely to surprise their men's eyes and their minds For it was all covered with plates of gold of great weight. And the first rising of the sun reflected back a fiery splendor. Made those who forced themselves to look upon it, to turn their eyes away, just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming at a distance. It says, like a mountain covered with snow. It was just beautiful. It glowed. There was something about it. There was a splendor that came from it. The presence of God. There was something there that people wanted. And Josephus describes it as a snow-covered mountain. For those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceedingly white. It was a beautiful scene as he walks in and sees this glorious city called Jerusalem that had significance from this day forward and they were building something for the nations and that's what you and i are building and as i mentioned in nehemiah chapter one when nehemiah heard that it had been broken down he became brokenhearted and he began asking the question what burdens my heart does anything burden my heart do i just hear that and walk away and go i sure hope somebody fixes that because that's a problem What does he do? For four months, he prays, and he prays not for a miracle, he prays for an opportunity. He prays that he would be the answer to his own prayer, and he would be the one to be sent, and most certainly he is sent. And in Nehemiah chapter 2, he walks the city and he plans. Careful planning leads to success. And he plans it out, and he figures out what he's going to do after four months of praying through his burden. What's your burden? What is it? And then there's great planning. I was reading a an article on my app. I, I got a new app from my brother-in-law. It told me about it. You can read articles. Um, you can download them into this app and then read them whenever you want. You don't have to have Wi-Fi or internet. And it's like Pocket or something like that. And so I put several articles in it that I wanted to read. And the very first re- article that I read was on Mozart, Picasso, and Kobe Bryant. What made them successful? I well, this will be interesting. And what this particular author does is he researches them, says the reason why they were all great, they were all great at what they did, is not because of the moment of greatness, it was what came before that. It was the years. In fact, he calls it 10 years of silence. In other words, it wasn't that you just wake up one day and become great and, and say, I've got a burden, I'm going to get it done, and it's going to happen today. It's what you do now that in the future will see a fruition that will see a level of success that you can't even believe. Because you're doing certain things now, you're praying, you're planning, you're holding on to that vision, you're preparing. What you're doing now is gonna have an impact, not today, but in the future. And I think that's true for all of us. And so the question is, in 10 years from now, in five years from now, let's get back together and let's talk about this moment in time. And let's talk about what it is that you felt a burden for. What did God ask you to do? And you began praying about it, and then we're going to talk about it and see where God, what God has done now in five to ten years from now. That's what we're talking about. See, it doesn't just happen like that. And so Nehemiah comes together in chapter 3, and they begin building a great project, a place to meet for families, to connect with God. And the second thing is, I want, you, I want you to see the gates. You've got to see this because I want you to go way beyond just simply seeing the fact that the way this thing is organized all the way through Nehemiah, if you notice the way it's organized, verse three, now the sons of Hassana built the fish gate and they laid its beams and hung its doors with its bolts next to them. Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hezcock, oh, they made repairs next to them. It just goes on and on and on. It just lists all these groups of families their sons and their daughters, people from different kinds of trades, different talents came together and they, they gathered around, they built the walls and the gates and the bolts and the doors and, and, and the towers and, and they began the construction of the whole thing. But what I want you to see is something far deeper than simply a construction project. These gates had meaning, spiritual significance. And what I want you to do right now is now stop listening to a history lesson, and tune in for a moment to a spiritual lesson. What is God speaking to you about? Because in order to accomplish something great, repairs need to happen. And repairs need to happen in your life and in my life. And the gates represent areas of your life that may need repair. Let's look at them. There's 10 of them. And I've listed them in your outline. The fish gate, the old gate, Excuse me, the sheep gate, the fish gate, the old gate, the valley gate, the dung gate, or the refuse gate, the water gate, the horse gate, the east gate, and the inspection gate. They're all listed in Nehemiah 3, each one of them. And the very first one is the sheep gate, and it's where Nehemiah starts, and guess what? It's where he ends, too. They go all the way around, and he starts with the sheep gate, and he'll come back to the sheep gate, and there's no question In my mind, that the sheep gate is far more than simply a gate to let sheep in and out. I mean, think about it. Jesus himself in John chapter 10 says, I am the gate, I'm the door. My sheep hear my voice, I'm the good shepherd. But going even deeper than that, in Isaiah, doesn't Isaiah 53 talk about one that would come, a Messiah who will be slaughtered as a sheep on our behalf? Isn't that true? I mean, we picked that up in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well, and we understand in 1 Peter chapter 2 that it's an unblemished lamb that will go to the slaughter on our behalf. So the first gate begins with Jesus and the cross. It represents the cross. Where is the cross in your life? Is the cross central in your life? Do you fully understand it? Do you understand the implications that you are not on the cross Get off the cross. It's not your job to die for the sins of the world. Your job is to lean on the one who did do the dying. He died for the sins of the world. And you represent him, and you go to him, you don't have to go up and get on the cross. It's not your job. He went to the cross to pay the consequence and the penalty of sin so that you might be in a relationship with God and be able then now to live in that experience and how freeing that is to realize it is not what I do, it is what Christ has done that establishes my relationship that enables me to be in a a dynamic, authentic relationship with God every day. I know that. The cross is central in my life. He's forgiven me. I'm not going to be brought down. I don't have to get up there and do that. That's not my job. My job is the next gate. And the next gate is the fish gate. Do you see that in the text? The fish gate, think of fish. Does Jesus ever use the concept of fishing at all? I mean, this is, this is not a coincidence. When I look at scripture and I understand the fact that the temple itself represents Jesus in the, the Olivet Discourse, he says every brick will come down every block, the temple, and he wasn't referring, he was referring to the temple, but he was also referring to himself that he would be the one that would be dismantled on behalf of humanity. See, tremendous significance. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. I mean, think of it. When you look at the actual temple and the various courts and leading from the Gentiles to the court of the women to the court of Israel, and then you go into the holy place and into the holy of holies, that whole thing in Hebrews is a way into the presence of God. The the, the author of Hebrews uses the actual physical construction of the actual temple to describe our spiritual journey into the deepest presence of God. That we all come in and through the holy place we are forgiven and we, we take up confession and we cleanse ourselves and we take the manna and we light the candle. And then we walk into the holy places with confidence, the holy of holies, into the presence of God. And now here these gates represent things. And the fish gate represents the fact that you and I in Matthew chapter 4 indicates that we are to follow him and he will make us what? Fishers of men. I was listening to a great sermon on this who actually inspired me on this message, Ray Stedman, who passed away many years ago. is was a great pastor in Northern California. And he said that a young boy came to him after a camp, a summer camp. And he asked him, he says, how did you fare camp? being a Christian and the little boy responded and said well it went great they didn't find out I was a Christian and Ray Steadman in his sermon says now there's a gate that needs a little repairing see we're we're to be fishers of men and then maybe that needs a little bit of repair work in our lives to understand that when we follow Jesus we're not just following him for a good life we're following him to become fishers of men. That's what Jesus is calling us to. He is, I had this great conversation yesterday with my son. We went mountain biking up in Santa Barbara and met and had a great day. And, and, and um, as always, a great dinner. And we sat around and talked and we always go deep in th- those moments. And he was sharing some things that he was learning. And, and I was telling him a little bit about this message. And he said, you know, Dad, help me understand, why is that so significant? Why, is, why do we have to have so much um, uh, Confidence in the fact that that's our job. I said, because those are the words of Jesus. I'm just going based upon what I understand Jesus to be teaching us in every area of my life. Yes, there's discussion. Yes, it can look conversation. Yes, it can look like a relationship. Absolutely, the way in which we fish for men and women is a relationship. But it is most certainly something Jesus called us to be followers to become. And so we had this great conversation about each one of these gates and are they, how, do they, how does that represent, how is that represented in our lives? Um, there's the next gate, the old gate. And the old gate is probably, this is a tougher one, but in Jeremiah chapter 6, it says this in verse 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths where the good way is, and walk in it, then you will find rest for your souls." you know, we're always looking for something new. How about something old? How about the old ways, right? I mean, in this one case, the old truth works. God's truth works. The old ways are still the good ways. Walk in them. And it's a recommitment back to the old ways, the old truth, the solid wisdom of God that we apply to our lives today today. And we're not looking, well, what's the newest thing? What's the new way of approaching it? No, let's go back to the old ways in this case. Next gate, valley gate. I call this the gate of hardship. I think of Psalm 23. I mean, it says, even though I walk through the darkest valleys, even though I do, it says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they're going to comfort me. So here's the valley gate that might represent the lowest part of your life and maybe there's a hardship or a valley that you're walking through in this life and that gate represents something that God wants to do in your life. Maybe the worst time in your life. Maybe the darkest valley. The sun no, does not shine there and there's a shadow casting over your life because of something that you're experiencing right now and yet God wants to use that. And what needs, be, what needs repair is your acknowledgement that God is at work even in the valleys of your life, no matter what those valleys might be. Disappointment, discouragement. You don't know. You don't know what's happening next. I remember a great discouragement when I was a college student. I was playing rugby for University of California, Berkeley, and, and I I was it was my senior year, and I was so excited and it was going to be a fantastic year. And I was ready, and I would prepared for it. I've been running all summer and lifting weights. And, and uh, it doesn't look like it, but I was. And, and it was, I was ready to do this thing. And it was exciting. And I finally moved. There were five teams. And I moved from the fifth team all the way up to the third team, finally on a travel team. I mean, it was the best team. Number one team was the best team in the United States. And I was just lucky to be on the team. I was just holding on. And, um, Finally got to a place and got a position. I was the number eight man. It's in the back of the scrum, and you hand the ball off. And it was an exciting position, and, and you're in kind of control of the scrum, and you keep the scrum moving, and you're, you're pushing. It's a motivating position. And, and so I loved it. It was really exciting. And I got hit really, really hard in practice. I was down, shoulder, completely knocked the shoulder out of position. And I patted padded it up. I went in to see the doctor. And I, they had me patted up and taped up and everything. I mean, I just, I, I, I refused to acknowledge that I was injured. And I'd go back out and practice. And I'd push harder and push harder. And the more I pushed, the, hard, the worse it got. I was done. It was done. Senior year was over for rugby. It was gone. That was the end of my career. And yet, God had other plans for me that year. He always does. You just don't realize it. You think that's what I'm supposed to do. You think that's the thing that God wants me to do. And then he changes course or he does something else in your life. And you realize, that's the valley gate of my life. Humility. That's what it represents. Hardship and humility. The dung gate. That's the the gate of refuse. So bringing out where there's sheep, there's going to be dung, right? So when there's sheep going in, there's going to be refuse going out. And uh, this this represents confession. I mean, think about it. Isn't that true? I mean, 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 says, cleanse yourself from all filthiness and all that's in the flesh and in the spirit. I mean, that's what we're to do, to cleanse ourselves, to go through that confession. In fact, Nehemiah brought confession before the Lord on behalf of Israel in Nehemiah chapter 1. You can read it. So it's a good process of confession, of recognizing what is in my life right now that is holding me back. I love the next gate. It's the fountain gate. And the fountain gate is found in verse 15. And I think of John seven thirty eight when it says that out of you, from within you, will flow river, rivers of living water. Jesus then says, I was speaking of the Holy Spirit, which had not yet come. So Jesus is referring to a Holy Spirit as the living water within you. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit will come and settle upon every single believer. And the Holy Spirit is the living water within you that gives you the power and ability to live out for him. The power to live the Christian life is found in the Holy Spirit. It's the fountain gate. And maybe that needs repairing. The water gate comes next. And in the water gate, it's interesting because it's the only gate that doesn't need repair. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, Ezra shows up and opens the law of God and reads it to the people after the wall is built at the water gate. I wonder why. What was significant about that? Unless of course the one gate that doesn't re- need to be repaired is the word of God. It's the word. Maybe it's returning back to the word. I, was, I, got to, I get up early on Sundays and begin thinking and praying and, and um, start reading through Isaiah and some Ezekiel and I'm like this is good stuff. This is encouraging. Like, why don't I do this more often? I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm preparing messages. But I felt like I was being spiritually filled up. I was like Psalm 1, that not walking in the way of sinners or standing in the seat of scoffers or sitting in the whatever, and, but... My love is the law of the Lord. There we go. That's the good part. That's the part. My my delight is the law of the Lord, and in his law, I I meditate day and night, and I will be like the tree firmly planted by the rivers of water. That's Psalm 1. It's, It's nourishing. Maybe it's a return back to the word of God in your life. Maybe you're not reading it with spiritual eyes to be filled up. Maybe that's missing right now. And and I thought about it and I said, I wonder if the spark has gone out. And I said, I need to return back to that, that hunger. Where is that hunger? See, that happens to all of us. It really does. It's the water gate, the horse gate. This is, when you think of horses in the Proverbs and the Psalms and most certainly in Revelation, Jesus rides at the very end into Jerusalem, into Israel on a white horse, it's battle. And I think it represents battle, that we're not on a cruise, we're not in a picnic, we're in a battle. And when we take our eyes off the fact that you and I are in a battle, Denise mentioned this in her, in her sermon several weeks ago on discipleship in 2 Timothy chapter 2, 3, and 4, that we must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. That's discipleship, is recognizing you're in a battle. You can't be a disciple without recognizing you're in a battle. The East Gate. Oh, this one I think is my favorite. The East Gate is the Golden Gate. See, after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD and the Turks moved in, Suleiman actually, he, he closed that gate up because it was right by the temple. That gate was closed and it's never been opened. The Golden Gate to this day, which is on the East Side, has been closed since this date. And guess what happens in the future? Oh, we think... Historical things just happen and we figure out a way to weave them into the Bible. I think it's the other way around. I think God knows what's going to happen and He knew it was going to be closed because in Ezekiel chapter 43, then He led me to the gate facing the east. And behold, the glory of God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory. It's a picture of the future of Jesus returning to his city. And this is the gate of hope. And I tell you, in this moment in my life, that's what I've been resting on. This is the gate that needs repair, is hope. Do I have hope? I mean, in the midst of making decisions and working through some health issues and coming through and out of that and, and, and not going back to that mentality that I'm not well, but moving forward, realizing we're in a growth period in our church and exciting things are happening, but that's also messy. Sometimes I feel hopeless. And what I need to remember is one day Jesus will come back and he's coming back. That's what I know. I know three things. I know that I have been eternally secure with Christ because of the cross. I know that about my life. I've given my life to Christ. I know that the word of God cannot be ever taken from us. The word of God stands forever. The grass weathers and the flowers fall off. And I know one other thing, and that is Jesus is coming back and he's bringing hope and he will restore all things and even in the midst of a messy world and of difficulty guess what that's what we hang on to his hope so that we can keep going see we live with that hope now see it's not a future hope I can't wait for that day I just I want him to come no we I know he's coming it's gonna work it's all taken care of we're not going to be overcome by zombies it's, we're not going to get hit by a meteoroid and, and all pa- pass away. This is not going to happen. This Messiah is coming back. That gate is going to open up, and he's going through it. and he's going to restore all things. And one final last gate is the inspection gate. And the inspection gate is the gate of accountability. Hebrews chapter 9:27 says an appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment." there is a final accountability of all that we do. And and I'm I'm aware of that. But what I love about the New Testament is it's not condemnation, it's commendation. Jesus is coming back on a white horse, battle. He will restore all hope and he will commend. He will commend. He will say, "Good good and faithful servant. He will commend you. I have that to look forward to a day of accountability for my faithfulness to Christ. Those are the gates that represent our lives, that represent the ministry that we're building. Think of the ministry that you're building, the project. Those are the gates, the ways in for people to come in. That's what they're becoming. That's who you are. The repair begins with you, and then you begin to see the project, the thing that you're building in your life, whatever it is that God has put you on this earth for. And then one last thing that I want to leave you with this morning, and James is going to do a phenomenal job next week of looking not from Nehemiah's perspective from the people's perspective. And we're going to come back to Nehemiah 3, and we're going to look at these people. We're going to look at the merchants and the perfumers, and we're going to look at the craftsmen. We're going to look at the priests. We're going to look at the men and the women, the sons and the daughters, and all these different individuals that had super, incredible talents that Nehemiah gathered together and put them around 40 sections and put them by family and sometimes put them right by their own home and armed them with swords and trowels, and they began work at Once they all began working with great talent. How did he do that? How did one individual pull that off? Well, I was listening to a sermon by Erwin McManus about how to be great. And he tells the story of LeBron James, who's coming to Los Angeles. And he says, I t- tend to believe that he's probably one of, the, probably the best basketball player today. But let me give you some statistics. Typical basketball game, you spend 48 minutes on the court. LeBron James spends 38 minutes At a 48. 10 minutes of a 48 minute game, the best player is sitting on the bench. He's sitting on the bench. And then when he's in the 38 minutes, he's handling the ball for 6.1 minutes. The best player in the game handles the ball for six minutes. And how is he great? And then Irma McManus, love it, said, why is this? How does this happen? And then these are the words he said. Listen to these words. His greatness is what happens to every other player who would look just average if he wasn't there. The key to leadership is inspiring others who are just ordinary to be great. We were down at my son-in-law's family's home a couple weeks ago on a Sunday afternoon, and we were having dinner and we were watching a football game. We were watching the Green Bay Packers play Chicago Bears. Green Bay was down 20 to 0. Aaron Rodgers gets knocked out in the first half of the football game with a bad knee. Somebody falls on his knee and he gets taken into the locker room, which is probably not good news. They're down. They're out. They look terrible. He comes back. Did you see this game? He came back. Maybe I, I just don't watch a lot of sports, but I'll tell you what, I saw a team come alive. And of course he's a great athlete, he's a great quarterback. But he that that whole team came alive. And do you know what the end score was? Does anybody know? 24 23. Green Bay. How did they do that? How do teams do that? How do you do that in life? How do we do that in our Christian life? I'll tell you what. How we do it. We inspire other people. We make other people great. And so James next week is going to come and he's going to just deliver the most amazing message on giftedness. And we have giftedness that's incredible in this room. And we're going to talk about it, and then we're going to actually explore our own spiritual gifts in the following two weeks. We're going to actually do some inventory and learn what are our gifts, what's our part part to play on the wall. We're going to do that together. But this morning, what is the project? What is the great cause? Is there repair work that needs to be done? And how are you inspiring others to be great? Let's pray. Come on up, worship team. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for uh, this uh, crazy guy, Nehemiah, who um, got inspired to rebuild a wall. And we, we now realize it was so much more than that. And what he accomplished is something that now motivates us to be like him, to be great for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand with us?